We're diving into a new series this morning. We've been in a year and a half series in the book of Genesis. And uh, this morning, we're beginning a new series, which is a little bit shorter. It's four weeks long. And I want to say this as we begin. To me, it's kind of important that you don't miss one of these four weeks, right? So... I know you might already have vacation plans in place. You might be traveling in the next couple of weeks. What I'm affirming or what I'm suggesting is please go back and listen to these four messages because by themselves, they aren't enough. Does that make sense? So we're we're doing a series called The Big Picture. And our series over the next four weeks is looking at the overarching grand story of the Bible so that we can understand something of the the totality of the story that God is telling in the scriptures and in the course of human history. And then we can understand both the way our lives fit into that, but we also understand what the individual books of the Bible have to say as they reflect and fit into the bigger picture. I'm only going to talk about one of those components this morning of the grand story, but there are four of them, and and I don't want you to miss any of those. So even if you've got to be out of town, make sure you come back and listen to these others uh, online or through the podcast or streaming or whatever, because I do think it will be helpful to us as a community to all of us sort of be on the same page, understanding the big story that God is telling. When we're in a study like the one we've just been in Genesis, it can be very easy to become uh, a little bit reductionary in our view, like a little myopic. There, there are times where uh, the, the classic idiom of missing the forest for the trees can be true, not just in a study of Genesis, but of any individual book of the Bible or of any individual principle relayed in the Bible or of any particular character in the Bible. If you get honed in on one particular facet of what the scriptures reveal, what can happen sometimes is that you get so focused on that one particular book or that one particular story or that one particular theological principle that you can sometimes then miss the big picture of the overarching story that God is telling in human history. So the point of this study over the next four weeks is to lift up our eyes and see the big picture in order to organize our lives and the way we understand scripture in light of that big story. I remember, uh, I mean, it's, it's, easy to, it's easy to miss the big picture, right? I remember when my son Hank was in fourth grade, uh, I, came home from, uh, I came home from work one day and I set my backpack down and he had been doing homework on the kitchen table. And so there was a piece of his homework that was left there on the table. And so I just kind of glanced at it. I want to know what he'd been working on. And I look and uh, he's written a formal letter there, right? So it, it, uh, it's a formal letter on the counter that my fourth grade son had written. And it said this, um, dear Mexican government... You are so kind and powerful and glorious. I long to get to know you more, and I look forward to drinking from your fountains. Sincerely, Hank McWaters, right? And I, I remember looking at that letter and, and being concerned, right? First of all, I don't know where my son Hank is getting his information about the Mexican government. Secondly, I don't know why he's writing them a letter. And thirdly, like, I've been to Mexico several times, and it's awesome. I love the people. I love the culture. But one thing they tell you again and again is do not drink from the fountains, Right? Like you were not supposed to, and so the fact that that's like a thing he emphasized that he wanted to do, I found very troubling. So uh, I, made, I made a mistake that is very common for me. I took a picture of that and I posted it to my Instagram. Now, Instagram historically for me has only ever been a source of trouble uh, because I like to fool around and I'm pretty, uh, you know, sarcastic and goofy. And many, many times there are people who look at my Instagram and they can't understand what's going on because they don't understand my sense of humor. Well, I posted this picture of Hank's homework, his letter to the Mexican government with a caption that was like, I'm confused about what my son's learning in school. And uh, then I got called into the principal's office for the first time in 20 years. So turns out my son's principal saw my Instagram and was troubled by it. He called me in 
And uh, he said, why did you, why did you do, this is critical of our school and of our teachers and of what we're doing. And like, why would you do this? And I was like, well, why is my son saying he's going to drink from the fountains in Mexico? It's very confusing. And he goes, well, you don't have the big picture. And I was like, yeah, I definitely don't. And he says, well, what what you need to understand is that the fourth grade teacher is doing a a section about diplomacy and about about different cultures working together. And so she's assigned each desk in the fourth grade classroom a different country. And depending on where the desks are located in the classroom, the, the students have to work with each other. They have to be ambassadors with one another to utilize the different functions. So like if you want to use the pencil sharpener, you have to write a letter to the ambassador from the country in the desk that's closest to the pencil sharpener. So you'd write a letter that says hey, you know, uh, Norway, I think you're really great. Can I sharpen my pencil? And so they're learning about diplomacy in the class. The girl who sits next to the water fountain is representative of Mexico, and your son was just trying to get a drink. And I was like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Big picture, right? I just needed, I needed more information to put that particular letter in context. And then, of course, it made sense. But I was making judgments and I was making jokes about things that were hurtful to other people because I didn't see the big picture. You guys, this is very possible with us when it comes to the Bible, right? It's very possible to look at these 66 books. There are 66 books in the Bible. It's very possible to look at one of them or to look at a section of them or to just grab a couple of our favorites or the ones that we find the easiest to understand or maybe the ones we've heard taught the most often or the ones that we resonate with personally and to pull them out of the context of the whole of the story and then to build our lives around something that isn't the big picture, that isn't a complete narrative, right? It can be easy to look at these books as individual books of stories or life lessons or theology or whatever that stand alone without considering how and where they fit into the big picture of the story that God is telling in human history. Now, I want to affirm as we begin this big picture study that we believe the Bible is authoritative. We believe that it's authored by God, that it's infallible and that it's inerrant. Passages like Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, right? So we believe the Bible is God-breathed, that he's the author of it, that he worked through human authors, but that he inspired them. We believe the Bible is inspired, and because God is the author of it, it is therefore perfect and true, right? We believe that it doesn't have any errors in it. It says in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, this idea of God authoring the scriptures, of him giving us the 66 books, and, and of authoring the overarching story of human history is important. Because what we sometimes fail to see is that um, if God had wanted to give us, for instance, uh, a systematic theology book, right? If God had wanted to give us a systematic theology book, he could have inspired human authors to write a systematic theology book, and that isn't what he did. If God had wanted to give us a book of inspirational quotes to sew onto doilies and to paint onto, you know, shiplap to hang in our bathrooms... He could have given us a chicken soup for the Christian soul authored by God, but that isn't what he gave us. If God had wanted to give us a straight up rule book, he could have given us a rule book. He authored it. He inspired it. He breathed it. He carried along these authors. He could have given us a systematic theology book. He could have given us a book of inspirational quotes. He could have given us a rule book. He could have given us a puzzle book, right? If God had wanted us to have this book of hidden mysteries that we were supposed to figure out and solve all the riddles inside, he could have given that to us. That isn't what God gave us. What God gave us is a story. 
And that might make some of you cringe a little bit when I say that the Bible is a story and that all 66 books feed into this story. That might make you nervous because you equate story with myth. I'm not saying that God gave us a fable here. I'm not saying that he gave us something untrue. I'm not saying that the whole thing is allegory. I'm not saying any of that. I'm not saying it's a myth. But I am saying that what God does is he gives us a story. And by that, what I mean is there are characters. There's action. There are settings, there are cultures, there are times and places. The story of God unfolds in these 66 books, but it does through through a variety of different people in different languages and different time periods, different pressures that were happening culturally at the time. There is a story that's being told. God doesn't give us a systematic theology book. And that's not to say that systematic theology in and of itself is wrong. But what I am saying, and what I I hope you hear me saying, is that if you reduce the story of God to systematic theology principles... You've missed it because that's not what God gave us. He gave us his story. If you reduce it to inspirational quotes or you reduce it to a tome of hidden secrets that only a select few people can comprehend, you've reduced it to something he didn't give us. And if he'd wanted us to have those things, he could have inspired them. But what he gave us is a story. And the story we see in scripture, the grand story, the big picture, is a story of King Jesus and his kingdom. King Jesus and his kingdom is the big story. From the very beginning to the very end, that's what the whole thing is about. It's it's important for us to emphasize that the grand story of God is about King Jesus and his kingdom because it's very easy for us, especially as Americans, it's very easy for us to want the whole story of human history to be about us, right? We want it to be, that's, this is a story about me. This is about how God came to save me because I was busted and God loves me and he needs me and he's given me gifts and he's going to use me and the whole story is my story. Eh, you, you and I are characters in the story, but this is first and foremost a story about Christ. And the reason that's important is that if we make it about ourselves, we've made it something that God himself didn't make it. Now, that's not saying it's not relevant to our lives, but it is saying that for each and every one of us who are followers of God, we have to come again and again to the fact that we are just minor players in the story of King Jesus and his kingdom. Does that make sense? We're included in that, but we're not central to it. It's why uh, in a book like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul is articulating the gospel, listen to what he says about Jesus' part in that story. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, right? What, what Paul is emphasizing here is that of first importance, and if you're the kind of person who takes notes, maybe you want to circle those words first importance or underline them. But Paul says, I want to tell you the gospel, and what is of first importance in the gospel is Jesus and what he did. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, he'll go on to talk about the fact that if Jesus is raised from the dead, we also will be raised from the dead. And if he hasn't been raised, everything we're doing is in vain. So it isn't that there aren't redemptive, uh, redemptive values for us or that there's not some like, there, there is some benefit for those of us who are in the kingdom story. But we're not the center of the story. What is of first importance is Jesus That he's the creator of all things. It says in John 1, similarly with this emphasis on Jesus as the center of the story, when John, uh, the gospel writer, set out to write the story of Christ, he begins at the beginning. Right? He begins at the beginning. He says this in John 1. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning 
was the Word. And there the, the Word word is capitalized because he's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about the incarnate Word of God in Christ. God's clearest articulation, the, the Logos, which is Jesus, God's speech. He says, in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the way John begins his gospel, by saying, hey, we can't even talk about the story of mankind until we've talked about the story of Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning, right? He, he, didn't, he didn't show up at the beginning. He was already there. And all things were created through him, right? Jesus is the creator. He was there at the outset. Human history is rooted in the person of Christ. And that continues. In him is light and life. John will go on to say he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the power to become children of God, right? That no one has ever seen God, he says in John 1, but in him... In Christ, God has revealed himself, right? This story, the story of the Bible, the story of human history is the story of King Jesus and his kingdom. Now that, that story plays out, that story plays out in sort of four different movements, right? It's important to understand that none of the 66 books in the Bible tell the whole story, right? They don't tell the whole story. They tell true parts of the story, they reveal different things, right? Each one of these 66 books, if we look at it, we recognize that while they don't tell the whole story, God has spoken through different authors and different cultures with different language and values shaped by their context. Each story of the book is valuable, but it is only the whole that gives us a picture of the meaning to all of it, right? The whole, the big story is only revealed when you see the whole thing. Think about, um, think about our Yelp review, right? I hope all of you know what a Yelp review is. Yelp is, uh, is a, a site online and on the phone that you can use to find out about businesses, right? Restaurants, or if you're looking for a new plumber or whatever, you can go on Yelp and people have all shared their little stories of the big story of that particular restaurant, right? They've all shared their little experiences uh, of their particular story of, of the, you know, the bigger story of that particular plumber or that particular contractor, right? And you would be foolish to go on to Yelp. Let's say you're looking for a place to have dinner tonight. You would be foolish to go on to Yelp and we'd read one review and go, that's it, I understand what the restaurant's like. Because it might be that you read a review of somebody who had a terrible experience. They'd had a terrible day at work and then their date didn't show up and then they wrote a review about the restaurant but it came from a place of, they were miserable that day, right? And so if you just read that review, you wouldn't understand the whole of what the restaurant's like. Similarly, if you read a review and it says like, this is the best restaurant I've ever been to. I've never tasted better food. The prices were perfect. The waiters were incredible. I never want to go to another restaurant with this one. Well, you can be pretty sure that was written by the owner of that restaurant, right? So you don't just want to read that one and you don't just want to read the one next to it. What you really want to do if you want to get a comprehensive view of the whole story of that restaurant or that plumber or that contractor is you want to read the breadth of it. We don't want to throw out any of the 66 books. We don't want to throw out any chapter of these 66 books. All of them reveal something of the breadth of the big story of King Jesus and his kingdom. None of it can be excluded. Even the things that maybe you find hard to read or maybe the things that you find difficult to comprehend or the things that feel boring to you. They are all there for a reason and cumulatively they all give us a picture of King Jesus and his kingdom story, right? We don't throw any of it out. But I would also warn you that you would be silly to look at a Yelp review and go, this review is my favorite review. Or this is the review that I think is the most meaningful, right? Or this review is the one that I'm going to tell my friends about. That would also be a mistake. 
Just because one particular review sort of gives you warm, fuzzy feelings or happens to feel like it's coming from someone who's in a similar spot you're in and so you resonate with that review doesn't mean that it's the best review. It's still just one piece of the big story of that restaurant. Does that make sense? That is true of the scriptures as well. There's a big story about Jesus, the king, and his kingdom. And it, and it comes to us in four movements. We're going to look at these four movements over the course of these next four weeks. And the movements look like this. We see at the very beginning of scripture. And by the way, this is an overarching, uh, it's an overarching four movements in the course of the Bible. But it's also a, a, a four movements that repeat themselves in almost every story in the Bible. And in every book of the Bible, we see these movements repeated again and again. And the, and the movements are these. We go from oneness, which is what we're going to talk about in just a second. We go from oneness in Genesis 1 and 2, then to brokenness in Genesis 3. Otherness, right? Oneness to otherness. And that otherness and the struggle with otherness and and like the trying to find some pathway through the otherness lasts from Genesis 3 all the way through the end of the Old Testament, right? Genesis 3 all the way to Malachi is a story of man's struggle with otherness. We were one. And then we became other. Now we get, to, we get to, to Matthew, the beginning of the gospel, New Testament. And all of a sudden there's a new movement. And the new movement is oneness restored in Christ. Oneness restored in Christ. And that's not, that's not perfect oneness, but it's the potential and the possibility of oneness through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we get to the last two chapters of Revelation. And this will be three weeks from now. The last two chapters of Revelation show perfect oneness restored. Wholly restored, right? These are the movements of the story of King Jesus and his kingdom, right? There are these movements that go from oneness to otherness, to oneness in Christ, to perfect oneness. And when you understand those movements, you'll start to see those movements as you're studying the book of Nahum, and as you're looking at Leviticus, and as you're reading the epistles, and as you're looking at Revelation, you look at prophetic passages. You can look at any of the other sort of small stories of the Bible, and you can start to see the big picture of Jesus and his kingdom revealed in this movement from oneness to otherness, to oneness restored, to oneness perfected. It happens again and again and again. And when we understand that broad story we begin to see how all of the other pieces fit. Even the ones that maybe we don't like as much or maybe the ones that we find confusing, they all fit inside the big picture, right? So for our purposes this morning and the time we have left, I want us to look at the first movement, the movement of oneness. And this might bum some of you out, but in order for us to look at that, having just finished a year and a half in Genesis, I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 1 we begin to see what this oneness looks like, the, per- the perfect unity and harmony. By the way, if you prefer to use the word shalom, shalom is a decent word for the kind of oneness I'm talking about. It's a holistic, full person, full-bodied wellness and rightness, a completeness, a perfection, a wholeness, right? And so what we see in Genesis chapter 1, and we won't read the whole thing, but as, as God creates man, listen to the way this moves and what it describes. It says in Genesis 1.26... Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. 
And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So the first thing I want you to see as we talk about the first movement of the story of King Jesus and his kingdom is that at the beginning, God is there, right? We just read that in John 1. That Jesus, the, the living word, was there in the beginning. So, so first picture I want you to see is just of the oneness of God. In Genesis 1, God is already there, and he is singular, but he consists of three persons in one. It's Trinitarian, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the rest of the Bible affirms that. So we've got a wholeness a shalom, a unity in God himself that existed before human history started, right? There is wholeness and oneness already just in looking at the person of God. And he says, let's make man in our image. And he creates man to to reveal him, right? To reveal who he is in his oneness. And so he creates man. We hear more about that in Genesis chapter two. Look at Genesis chapter two, verse seven. It says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So we have God, one in three persons, existing in, in uh, sameness and otherness, in perfect unity, mutual love and service, right? That's how God has always existed. There is oneness in the person of God. And then he makes man in his image. But look at what he does. Right from the get-go, he makes man. And man is singular and one, but he's made up of component parts. So there's something, there's the stuff of the earth. He forms man out of the dust. So there's an earthiness. There's a, there's, a, there's a physical thing, right? He forms man out of the dust, but he breathes life into him with his breath. So there is both something, uh, there's the stuff of earth and the stuff of heaven, right? There is the physical and the spiritual existing in one singular unit. So there's even oneness in the man by himself. He's been created to be a mixture of earth and spirit, right? That he is, he is both. It also tells us the end of Genesis 2, and we'll look at this in a second, that the man and the woman were naked and they weren't ashamed. That's not a reference to something sexual. That's a reference to the fact that they are whole in and of themselves. That they don't feel intimidated, that they don't feel embarrassed, that they don't feel self-conscious, that they don't feel ashamed or guilty. That has to do with the wholeness in which they are created as individuals. So we've got a, a whole God who creates a whole man whole and yet comprised of various pieces. And then God and man have harmony and oneness together. He creates God and man for relationship. God has created us to know him and to love him. It tells us in Genesis 3 that God walks in the cool of the day with his creation, that they know him. There's harmony and union, right? So oneness in God, oneness in man and himself, and then a oneness between God and man. But as we read on in Genesis chapter 2, It says this in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. We talked about this when we studied Genesis 2. That word helper is a word that in other places in the Old Testament is used for God himself. So that doesn't mean secretary and it doesn't mean assistant and it doesn't mean sidekick, right? It means, it means comrade, right? It it means fellow, right? That God, God is never our sidekick, right? And yet he helps us. God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So what we've already seen is the unity of God in and of himself, wholeness and oneness there. The unity of man in and of himself, wholeness and oneness there. The unity and oneness between God and man in perfect fellowship and harmony, right? And now God says it's not good for the man to be alone. And he splits the man into two that are similar. They're the same, but they're other. Similar, but different. And he creates the potential then for a one flesh union. By the way, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, when it talks about one flesh, again, it's not talking about sex. That's not, that's not talking about sexual union. It's talking about kinship with one who is similar but other than you, right? Uh, we, we know it's not about sex because later, which we studied not too long ago, when, when Jacob see, or excuse me, when Laban sees Jacob in the Old Testament, he says, ah, here's Jacob, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And that's not a sexual thing, right? It's kinship, it's familiarity, it's comradeship, right? God says, there's going to be harmony in me. There's harmony in you. There's harmony between you and I. And now there's unity and oneness between man and fellow man, between man and woman. So look at all the oneness we see in the garden. Not only do we see oneness in God and in man and of himself, we see oneness between man and woman as they become uh, one flesh, right? They leave their father and mother and they become one flesh. So there's unity and oneness there. There's unity between God and man, between man and woman, and there's wholeness and oneness in the creation. In the creation, we don't see any death. We don't see any pain. Even what they eat for food doesn't require the shedding of blood. God had already said in Genesis 1, I've given you every green plant for food and every creature that's on the earth will eat plants. So in the original creation and in these first two chapters, we don't see any shame. We don't see death. We don't see injustice. We don't see division. We don't see jealousy. We don't see fear. There's nothing broken here. There's oneness between God and man, between man and woman, between God, man, woman, and creation. There is wholeness and oneness, nothing broken, right? It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture, and it is, it's a picture that we, we long for still, don't we? You feel it, don't you? The desire to, to be with other people, the desire to know God, the desire to not be alone, the desire to not be abandoned. I don't know how many of you in the room have ever gone through a divorce, but it's the reason why divorce is as painful as it is for everybody involved. I've never met anybody who loves divorce, right? It sucks. It stinks for everybody. Why? Because there's, there's a oneness that's built into us. We are built for oneness in ourselves, oneness with God, who is one himself, oneness with our fellow man, and oneness with the creation. All of the brokenness, and all of the pain, and all of the shame, and all of the suffering, and all of the division, and all of the greed, and all of the envy, all of that comes after Genesis 1 and 2. And each and every one of us have built into us a desire to get back to oneness. And we find, we find pockets of something that's close, we find pockets of places where we get to taste it and experience. And when you taste oneness with other people and with God, you don't want to turn loose of it, do you? You long for it. It's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 says, uh, For a while we are still in this tent, meaning our, our physical bodies. For a while we are still in this tent and we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
We, we are living with a hunger for oneness, and yet we see all kinds of division, all kinds of tribalism, all kinds of separation. That's all a byproduct of brokenness, which we'll look at next week. But Colossians chapter 1 says that oneness is where we're headed. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Speaking of Jesus, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1 says not only that God created us in oneness and wholeness, but that he will restore us to oneness and wholeness. That he is reconciling all things to himself. He's reconciling all things. It's why Jesus in John 17 prays, in his high priestly prayer, John 17 verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I think maybe we talked about it when we were studying John. But sometimes we see ourselves, modern people, in 2022, we see ourselves as not being represented in the scriptures, right? Because it's about old-timey people and people who lived 2,000 years ago and whatever, or more. But you, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room today, you know that you're in the Bible. You're right there in John 17. He prays for you specifically. He prays for me. I'm in the Bible. Jesus, the creator of all things, the king of the universe, prays for me in John 17. Because he doesn't just pray for his disciples. He prays for those who will believe in him through the word of the disciples. Well, guess what? That's me. And that's some of you. Jesus praying for us. Listen to what he prays. Listen to what Jesus prays for you. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. He says, I pray that they have oneness. Just like we are one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that they would be one with us, that they would be one with one another so that the rest of the world will see that oneness and find it as well, right? Jesus understands that there's a, that there's a big picture, right? And the big picture is, is his story. I love in... Uh, in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. In Luke 24, 27, after the resurrection, it says that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, sits down with a couple of his disciples and he opens up the Old Testament and he shows them all the places where he is revealed in the Old Testament. It says in Luke 24, 27, uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That, that's a college course I'm hoping to take in heaven, Right? I can't wait to sit with Jesus and have him go, you didn't see me here in this book and you didn't see me in this book, but I was there, right? Jesus himself recognizes that there's a grand story and that the grand story is his story, the story of our king and the story of his kingdom, which was one at the beginning and now is in brokenness. And yet in the, in the era in which we live, there is the opportunity for oneness in Christ to move from otherness to oneness. And there is a day coming, my friends, when that oneness will be perfected. When we understand the grand story, when we understand the movements of the grand story, that Jesus is the central character and not us, it changes the way we read the whole thing. It changes the way we see our world and the way we see our neighbors. It gives us clarity on even how to read the other books that maybe you're not as inclined to read, right? That you could go back to them and look, look for the story of Christ and his movement from oneness to otherness, to oneness in Jesus, to, 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 to perfect oneness. You can see that movement through every, every book of the Bible. They all work together. 
I'll finish with one last picture. I think sometimes our, um, well, I'll give, I'll give you a very practical example. When we're studying Genesis for, Genesis, for instance, over the last year and a half, it can be a little bit like being on the, the streets of L.A., and sort of walking around in the streets and you see all these things really close up. You know, you get to see all the little cafes. You get to see all the places that are beautiful and the places that are broken down. You get to see all the people and the places where the sidewalk is cracked and broken and the places where they're building new elaborate apartment buildings. Like on the street, you get to see things really close up. But you don't really have a, a picture of, of the, the whole, right? You don't really, you don't really see everything. When you're on the street, you just see the stuff that's right in front of you. And sometimes walking through an individual book can be that close up. And and what this study over the next three weeks is trying to do is to let a helicopter land in the middle of the street and get you on it and then slowly raise up, right? And as we slowly raise up, all of a sudden, you don't just see the street you were on with its sidewalks and its apartment buildings and its different people. But as the helicopter rises, you start to see the whole of the city. And then more than that, you start to see the whole of the state. And if you could get high enough, right, you would start to see the whole of all of the topography and all of the geography and the way the whole thing works together. And that will more greatly inform your understanding of the street, right? When you come back in the various times when the helicopter comes and lands, you have a greater understanding of the individual streets and the individual alleyways and the individual homes, the places that you visit on a small level because you've seen the big picture. But the danger for us as Christians is that sometimes we get trapped in a cul-de-sac. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we get trapped in a cul-de-sac and maybe the only thing you care about is the book of Romans. If all you care about is the book of Romans, you're trapped in a cul-de-sac and you need to get on a helicopter, right? And you need to be lifted up above it. It's not that Romans isn't good or helpful, but Romans isn't everything. Even the gospels aren't everything, right? Genesis isn't everything. And if you get trapped in it, or if you get trapped in one theological idea, or you get trapped in one inspirational quote, or you get trapped in one set of rules... It's like being trapped in a cul-de-sac and not only are you missing the rest of the city, but you're certainly missing the rest of the big picture. Our hope in the coming weeks is that we would see the whole, the story of King Jesus and his kingdom. And that we would understand not only what the Bible says about that, but we would start to see clearly our place in that big story. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. I get excited about all of this because it just helps us frame who you are and what you're doing and what the point of all this is and where we fit in your big story. I pray, God, that you might stir in the hearts of some of those sitting here this morning a desire to go and wander the streets of Leviticus and to wander the streets of Nahum and to wander the streets of Jude and Titus and some of these other places for the sake not just of getting trapped in the nitty-gritty, but being able to see the way that each of these stories points at your bigger story. And that we would see it, that we would understand our place in it, and that it would produce a longing for a oneness that you will ultimately restore, but which we can know in you in the meantime. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.